Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, do you like Alanis Morissette? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. You think so? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those she's... Well, ironically, with my new car, I have Sirius XM satellite radio free for a year, and this is not a plug. So there is a channel that I really like called Lithium, and they play a lot of music from the 90s, early 90s, like when you and I were in college. And she was the host of a... She was like a DJ host. You know, you I started, really liked her. You know you started that story with the word ironically? And she... did ironic. Yes, yes. But and, I thought it was really cool, I just want to say this, like that she had, she had been told what to do you know, how to write, and you were telling me the story of what she, sh- how she should be this rock star, and she did her own stuff, and and she told that on her little spot that I listened to. You heard that too? It was That's why like, I yeah. brought her up. You're kidding me. No, it was just on, like, because <clears throat> the other DJ was talking to her, and um, I, I have, like, a five-minute drive, you know? Yeah, so, to work. And I was just like, I forgot to tell you that yesterday, that I heard that. Oh, she talked about. Well, that's like, just proof that we don't plan anything for this <laughs> yeah. podcast. This is just serendipitous happenstance. How how about that for some old timey words? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why that's so cool. That's why I brought her up. The when I heard her tell the story, it was one of those like MTV or VH1 rockumentaries. Mm-hmm. You remember those? Yeah, I think it was VH1. Yeah. I love Rocky. I love documentaries on most topics. I mean, mm-hmm. some topics don't interest me, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I'd rather watch a documentary than a movie any day. And so I used to love those rockumentaries. And yeah, I, I saw her interviewed. And just to bring our listeners uh, on board with our little inside conversation, she talks about how for like a decade, the first 10 years of her musical career... She was writing what the record label wanted her to write, and she was going the direction that the producers and the promoters and the managers and all the the so-called experts were telling her to go. And her bit, you know, her record sales were flat, and it wasn't going well. And she was her career was coming to an early end. And as a last ditch thing, not even an effort to save her career, just as a last ditch effort to be true to herself. She wrote an album full of songs that were just how she felt. It was her life experiences and the pain she'd been in and the trauma. And I don't remember which album that is, honestly. That would be, make the story better if I did. Again, we never research. Yeah, we don't even talk to each other before we start recording. <laughs> but the, her career took off as a result of just singing about her stuff and her pain and her experiences. And <clears throat> I've never forgotten that. I mean, I probably saw that 10, 15 years ago, and I've never forgotten that interview because I think it's just a testament to how important it is that we speak the truth and just talk about our stuff. So you heard her talking about the same thing. Yeah, it was just, it was just a little bit, it was much briefer than that, but how she had just, you know. Her, it's no, funny how someone no. else's own explanation can be briefer than my recap. No, I just meant she said something to the point of, you know, my best album was the one that I just did for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's how she put it. Like, just did for herself or something. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah. So cool. It lines up really well. When I started writing, I had taken a writing class, and then I ended up 
hiring the teacher of that writing class to do, you know, as a private writing coach, that was part of the business that she had, was writing coaching. And so when I launched our Sober and Unashamed blog, she helped me for six months to get the first six months worth of blog posts ready and polished. And there were some, you know, she she taught me some grammar rules that I had forgotten or never learned in high school. So there were some nuts and boltsy kind of things. But there were a few stylistic things that she taught me that I will never forget. That six months had, you know, a lifelong impact on me. And one of, right at the top of the list of stylistic things she taught me is tell your own story. If you're going to be a narrative nonfiction writer, a memoirist, tell your own story. Don't don't tell people what they should do. Don't tell them what they should get out of the lesson that you're trying to teach them. Assume that people are smart enough to draw their own conclusions and tell your own story. And the reason, the support that she had for that instruction, for that advice was, if you tell people what to do, they can argue with you. They can disagree with you. If you tell people what best practices are, they can do research and cite examples of where you're wrong. If you tell your own story and allow people to either learn from it or not, there's no arguing with you. Nobody can argue with your own story. And so not only is it good advice from the (coughs) standpoint that uh, I don't receive a ton of negative feedback uh, that's of the, you know, direction of what you're saying is not true because you can't argue with my story, but it's also, it, it gives the reader a chance to relate to what I've said and if they relate, then they're now they're interested, right? Now they're bought in because my story is their story and they want to know more. And then they want to know not only about the pain that I've suffered or the pain that I've caused you, but the solution that um, how we have fixed that over time. And so it just, it adds credibility. But just like Alanis Morissette's story, you know, my story to a much less degree as it relates to fame and following, um, but they're the same story nonetheless. Just speak your truth, man. Let let people figure it out. And, you know, I think that's really... The power of truth cannot be overstated in kind of all the, the work that we do, all the different directions that we listen to people and learn about people and, and try to help them. Um, de- defaulting to the truth is really an asset in what you and I do in the recovery space. And Sherry, I think it's easy for you. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I I think you are unique in one way. You automatically default to the truth. Either that or you're just this brilliant, evil mastermind liar that I haven't figured out in the 25 plus years that we've been together. But I think you're unique in that you default to the truth. And honestly, I, I am... I am 100% well aware of the fact that the success of this podcast is due 100% to you and your story, the way you tell it, and how people relate to it. Even though I do so much talking, that's just um, because you don't like to talk or do the preparation stuff, but I know that you are what people are listening to, and the reason they love you is the reason people love Alanis Morissette, because you just speak your truth, you wear your heart on your sleeve, and you give the raw emotions, and that's why people love you. Um, and an example of that, 
because I know you're not going to say anything necessarily about that. But there are times on this podcast where I try to lead you to a certain answer that I want. I'm trying to make a point doing exactly what my writing coach told me not to do. I'm trying to make a point and I try to lead you to a certain answer. And you, you don't go there if it's not if it's not how you truly feel. And that's a huge tribute to you that you know, you're not going to bend your recollection or your emotions or your thoughts to match the point I'm trying to make, which I think most, you know, in co-hosting situations, they are trying to feed off each other and finish at the same finish line, but you don't do that. You you tell it like it is, even if it train wrecks the point I'm trying to make. Which I think, I mean, that's, I'm trying to make that a compliment. I think it's a huge compliment. How do you okay. feel about that? Well, there were, there were lots of times when I was younger that, you know, as a kid and young teenager and young adult where I didn't really know what I wanted or know who I wanted to be or know what I really needed. Um... But one thing I've never really been able to do is hide my emotions. I've just never been good at that. So whether it's, you know, anger or um, sadness or feeling like something was unfair or unjust, I've just never really been able to contain that and put on a poker face. I mean, I think that oftentimes I feel like that is a big disadvantage not being able to contain my emotions, especially when it does come to anger, you know, but then there's lots of examples, not in my life, but I've seen in other, you know, situations where anger was the right course of action and expressing your anger, you know, made the change happen. So I guess that's a compliment. I guess it's a good thing. I would argue that that is one of the things that saved our marriage. I mean, our marriage is in a really good place right now. And, you know, we are surviving recovery from alcoholism. And I would say that your honesty is a big part of that. We talk with people all the time about, you know, trying not to get sucked in. When the alcoholic is spewing venomous things, try not to get sucked in and spew venomous things back at them. But the truth is, you did. When I was nasty to you, you were nasty back to me. And like you said, you you couldn't hide your emotions and we would have awful arguments and shouting matches. And, you know, I'm sure, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. The day after, you know, I was licking my wounds and feeling awful. I I mostly focused on the fact that I had overdrank. I wasn't sensitive and empathetic enough to focus on the awful things I had said to you. I mean, I did to, to a degree for sure. But the root cause for me was that I had drank too much, and so that's where my focus was when I was licking my wounds. Did you feel bad when you had said nasty, mean things to me? Did you wish you had kept it better under control? Yeah, I, I think there were lots of times where it would start out where I was trying to keep it under control or try to walk away. I'm not talking to you right now. Those sort of you know sentences that just kind of, you know... Um, I don't know what a good analogy or um, example of that is, but like they would just like kind of be fallen on deaf ears, I suppose. Yeah. Because you were drunk and you didn't want to listen or to what I was saying. And then I would get, then that would infuriate me because I would try to walk away. I would try to take time. And this is a personality difference between you and I, whether you were sober or drunk Mm -hmm. and whatever, like you wanted to solve the problem then. Right. It couldn't wait it needed to be talked out 
until it was solved and resolved. Right. And I needed space because I knew that I was going to blow. And so I would be feeling bad about myself because I had said nasty things, that I let my emotions get the better of me, that I let your behavior dictate and drive how I was going to feel and overreact. Um, Also, I would be pretty pissed at you because I felt like you made that happen to me. I wasn't taking ownership of that. I am in control of my body and my mouth, but I would also then be mad at sure. you and be angry with you that you pushed me to that point. Sure. So I just hated us both in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Next day. I, I totally get that. Here's what's interesting. I've, I've for a long time now said that there were two things that caused me to get sober permanently sober and and really make it over the hump one was the pain that i was feeling from my own depression and anxiety debilitating depression and anxiety can't get out of bed kind of depression and anxiety but the other thing was that your demeanor changed and you to use recovery lingo you detached you were no longer interested in what i had to say about what my new plan was for drinking or what book i had read about recovery Pardon me, you were no longer listening, you know, when I was telling you what's coming next. And it was a huge wake-up call for me. And you weren't faking that. Mm -mm. I think this is really important. It was as, as authentic as anything. If we argued into the night and we said nasty things to each other, that was authentic. It wasn't, it wasn't that you really felt those that way about me when you were saying nasty things and when I was saying nasty things to you, I didn't really feel like, you know, you were the worst human being on earth or whatever awful thing I was saying. But the anger, the emotion was authentic. And so when that spigot turned off and I wasn't getting the anger anymore, you just didn't care. And I sensed, my my thought was, she's looking for a way out. She's trying to figure out how to be done with me. And that authenticity that you've always carried with you throughout it all is I think the reason that that was so impactful. We, you know, we never experienced someone sitting down and explaining to you what detach with love means. And then you came home and tried it on me. Mm-hmm. Like we never did that, that so. <clears throat> it's just a natural course of action. It was a natural course like, of action. Like I wasn't even invested in you enough to be aggravated or sad. Cause towards the end of your you're drinking, you're very much more sad and depressed and anxious. I, I didn't even, like, have feelings enough to, like, care. I was like, well, you've got yourself in this situation. You, you've you known for, you know, ten, almost ten years. Like, so I felt like I had no idea, but it was just what my body was saying to do. I don't know if I would have been able to do it otherwise. If I would have, like, you know, it had been five years after you were like, I think I have a drinking problem, and then, Someone told me, you have to detach with love. I'd be like, oh, whatever. Okay, well, I'll try it. And it would have been fake and you would have known it. So that's what's so interesting about this. You know, we share with people that your detachment was one of the two factors that got me sober and saved our relationship. But at the same time, (coughs) we're, we're here talking about how authenticity is so important and you can't fake it. So you can't just read a book on detachment and do it. And expect it to work. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it'll work for other people. But I I think the authenticity piece is so incredibly important. So I I think 
you know, the message is, I think, don't, you know, don't beat yourself up if you get dragged into the rage cycle and you aren't able to stay out of the fight, you know, when you're in it, as a lot of our friends in, in Echoes, Echoes of Recovery like to say. But well, maybe, maybe just knowing the importance of the authenticity and how the cycle eventually plays out, maybe that'll help you move through the cycle in an authentic way more rapidly. Well, I think there was detachment I was doing um, early on that I just wasn't aware of. But when I look back, like, you know, I had, um, I myself had stopped drinking a lot. So that was like detaching from you because you would be like, come have beers with me or come drink with me. It's Friday, you know, Friday night. Let's, let's have some cocktails on the porch, those sort of things. And I was like, no, no. Yeah. Um, so I was detaching along the way, not spending time with you and our intimacy was, was, you know, drying up really quickly. You knew that it was very much just mechanical, yes, you know, marital sort of obligatory. So I think that when I look back, there was detachment that was happening. And again, I think it was just a natural feeling within me. Maybe if I had learned more about detaching with love and doing those detaching things, I could have worked better on it and it maybe would have stopped a little earlier. Um, I mean, I think just at the end, I I wasn't necessarily knowing if I was looking for a way out, but I was just like, okay, well, this is my life. And... As long as, and I know that divorce is hard on everybody, the kids, even if they're adults. And I guess I was maybe the only way that I was thinking and planning of if there was a way out was, okay, this is how old our youngest is. If I can just deal with this for a little bit longer and he gets halfway through college, you know, then maybe, yeah, maybe that's when I'll leave. So... It was a self-preservation act where I just became kind of enclosed and I just didn't share a lot of things that were going on with you. And I had stopped talking to you about um, intimate details or relationships or things that may happen outside of our relationship because I had run up against some trouble times in the past, like where you were drunk and you found out and you like, you know, got really angry at that person. You didn't do anything, but you got really angry. What's an example? So when we were living in Chicago, um, there, I had an incident where I, where we were the accountants at our church, a volunteer. And I said something about, I had to work late at my other job and I miss, um, calculated my calendar and I didn't get to the like monthly meeting on time. And she was very, very upset. And she said something kind of, one of the ladies on the board said something kind of rude and I think they were just disappointing because it was a small church that was dying and they were just really stressed about financials and I came, I didn't come so I didn't have the financials, they couldn't know what was going on and I remember like later on that night because it was a Friday night, you were like really pissed about it and you got like just fixated on it and you punched... um, I got fixated on it? Yeah, (laughs) and you punched a, um, punched at the wall but had it like a... Uh, picture, you know, in glass. And so you had cut your hand and there was blood all over the place. And then you went and laid on our bedspread oh. and bled all over our bedspread. And I was, was just it like, white? I hope it was, it was like 
off-white with decorations, and it was Smart. certainly nothing that you could wash. It had to be dry-cleaned only. And, of course, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to Just the kind of thing and... you want to get blood on. Yeah, exactly. But I was just, I was like, well, I just can't really share a whole lot of stuff, as, you know, because I don't know how he's going to react. Oh, and I... this was still very early into the marriage, so there was a lot of jealousy. You had those, and protective components, I guess, that you had. And then just that immaturity and drinking. And I was like, well, I'll have to... Watch what not, you share. Yeah. Because I remember telling you how hurt I was about it. Yeah. Because I didn't know how to handle that. Because I was still a young adult. So you were 26. detaching in that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think... I don't, I don't think we want to share with people that if, you know, you're getting sucked into an argument with your alcoholic spouse that you should... Get your best zingers ready and and dive right into it because that's what Sherry did and that's what the authentic Sherry did. You, you know, it's still that that's still not going to be a productive conversation yeah. and it's going to cause anxiety for both both people. So I, I don't want our our story here to be misconstrued. Um, because yeah, there is, I mean, there are lots of books. There is lots of advice, lots of podcasts, lots of reading that you can do about how to walk away from that and detach from it. And so certainly, you know, it's best to stay out of the fire as much as you can. Yeah, I mean, but if don't I had, had yourself tools, up I probably would have been better. Yeah, if you authentically end up in the fire. Yeah, we so wasted a lot of, of time. Yeah. Like a terrible cycle for many years. Where I'm sure if I had had tools or therapy on my own or researched or even thought about doing that. I think I think the truth is hard for the loved ones of alcoholics for a couple of reasons. And please don't mis- misunderstand. I'm not calling the loved ones of alcoholics liars. I think there are a number of things. One of them is the story you just told about when we lived in Chicago why would I bring something up to you if there's a potential for it to set you off into an irrational fit of rage that's going to end up being directed at me? I'm speaking yeah. from you, right? Yeah, I don't think well, you were directing it at me. I just thought it was a complete overreaction. And I was like, well, God, if this is how he's going to behave, I'm not going to tell him things. Yeah. So I think that's that's certainly one of them. I think another reason that the truth is hard for the loved ones is that many of the people that we meet who are in this situation are married to an alcoholic are, you know, they're so focused on taking care of the alcoholic, picking up the pieces. Um, you know, even, even if it's unfair to have to pick up the pieces and really focused on that caregiving aspect and being a people pleaser and just trying to right the ship, right? Just trying to Make everything look and feel okay, even if temporarily. I think the loved ones are often too busy doing that to even understand what their own truth is. Yeah. Like there's no, like you didn't sit around and think about what you wanted and um, how you felt and what your needs were. Like those weren't thoughts that went through your head, right? You were just trying to survive. Yeah. I don't, I think that I have a hard time. Even now, like, saying exactly what I want sometimes. Mm-hmm. I know, 
you and I have these conversations and it was worse a few years ago. You know, well, what do you want to do, Sherry? I don't know. What do you want to do? Like, I wasn't that weak and meek a lot of times. But oftentimes I deferred to you because for so long, if I didn't defer to you when you were drinking, I didn't know how it was going to come across. I mean, I tried several times to do things my way or in say, this I think would be fun. And then it would not be as fun for you. Mm -hmm. And then it came back on me. So we're just like, I don't know. What do you think? Or can the kid go spend the night at their friend's house? I don't know. What do you think, Matt? So I just squashed and deferred to you, squashed myself, deferred to you, made sure everybody was happy, at least on the surface, and things looked good. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you're right. That's still, that trait from alcoholism still lingers you wanting to be kind of open-ended and not, I don't know, not rock the boat. Is that right? Yeah. Because, like even, I think it was last week, I was making breakfast and I said, what do you want on your toast? And you said something to the effect of, oh, either some butter or some jam. And I thought to myself, either way, I'm taking a knife and I'm spreading something. Why would I give a shit which one I spread? And so, so Sherry, just tell me, I didn't say it that way, but that was what was going on in my head. Do you want butter or jam? Like, why would you leave that decision up to me? It makes absolutely no difference to me. But that's that's still that instinct, right, to kind of hedge your bets and yeah. and to be somewhat of a people pleaser. Is that? Yeah, I sometimes it's just like either tastes good, so I don't really care what and whatever you have out or whatever you know. Well, whatever you have out is a people pleaser. Don't yeah. Don't take that one and a half seconds to get the butter out if it's not already out, Matt. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I know. I, I think this, this is very, very common. And yeah. And I think it's kind of re- I think it's kind of really important. Yeah. I mean, but there have been things that I have felt bad that I've planned and it hasn't worked out and it's backfired. So I, uh, I think that it just kind of is a holdover. Yeah. Still shows up every once in a while. And I think that's another really, I'm glad you brought that up. That's another really important point because the defense mechanisms that you built over many years to prepare yourself to handle my active alcoholism, those don't just go away immediately. So if you still struggle to tell me stories about things that happen because you're afraid I'm going to have some horrid reaction, that's understandable. I mean, I think we've made a lot of progress in maybe the last year or so, especially with financial matters. That's a huge trigger in, I think, every single relationship we've ever, you know, learned about. The idea that a chunk of money needs to get spent on something and, oh, God, I got to We got to have that conversation. I don't want to talk about that because the reaction is going to be awful. I think that's gotten a lot better between you and I just recently, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Why are you laughing? Oh, I'm just thinking about... Our oven makes this terrible noise now when it's on convection and the dishwasher's about out and the refrigerator's freezing everything and you were talking about getting a new dishwasher and I said, oh, and remember, we have to get the wisdom teeth pulled. And you're like, really? We do? I'm like, yeah. Well, not our wisdom teeth. One of the kids. One of the kids, yeah. So I was like, yep, I've gotten better. I'm like, my true self is coming out of my pessimist, my Debbie Downer. Oh, yeah, we got this bill and this bill and this bill. I'm already (laughs) mentally several thousand into the expenses and you're just piling it on. Yeah. I love it. I love that you feel free and comfortable to do that. Well, back in January, you said, let's 
try to like buckle down a little bit and I feel like since then it's just been expense yeah. after expense medical exam like it's been crazy so I think that it's it was almost that that's the curse. point that kind of just made me giggle and laughed and be like you know we did so well with like things not creeping up except yeah. for orthodontics and then it's just gotten worse as the kids have gotten older and now what? I'm like hell everything is just going to break right now at this moment all you got to do is talk about how uh you, you want to not spend the money and then this money will spend itself for you yeah yep absolutely that was the kiss so of death. humor i guess it's where i'm going with now it just makes me laugh probably with an eye twitching maniacal laugh oh we have to spend this money now too because for so long i would be so worried about spending money yeah even if it was something necessary you you were worried about my reaction yeah. to you spending the money. Yeah, absolutely. On the most recent episode of the podcast, episode 131, we talked about boundaries. But I don't think boundaries is the right starting point. This was actually pointed out to us by some of our friends in Echoes of Recovery. Before you can do the boundary work and set up what you are and are not willing to tolerate in your life and in your relationship... You got to know what your needs are. You've got to establish your needs. And so, and I think that's a really good point because how do you put boundaries around the life that you're living and what you're willing to tolerate until you know what your what 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 are the desires that are driving what you're willing to tolerate? So I made a little list of potential needs that I think we both feel uh, so I I would love your reaction to this list. Safe, <laughs> safety is on the list. Is that something that you consider a need? Well, yeah, I think everybody would, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But not just physical safety. Well, I've got down here on my list, further down on the list, financial security, which falls into the safety area as well. And since we just talked about the dishwasher and the oven and I actually didn't know we had a refrigerator problem but that's good to know <laughs> I did know about the wisdom teeth that's good but uh financial security being another one um peace you know it's one of the problems with people who have our story which I think is probably the the most common story nothing special about us the drinking heavy heavily in your late teen and 20s and, you know, college years, that kind of a thing, and then early career before you have kids, both the both spouses drink heavily, and then uh, you start a family, and the wife sobers up or or slows way down, I should say, and the man just keeps on drinking. Um, the idea in my head of peace, it wasn't part of, it wasn't anything I was going for. Like I wanted to still have wild nights and and be sleep deprived, and I lived on the mantras, stupid things like you'll get all the sleep you need when you're dead, and work hard, play hard, you know those kind of yeah. just dumbass things that people say. And so, but now I I don't think it's because I'm older. I think it's because of what we've been through. Now I have a much greater appreciation for peace, but. That was something that you had as a need long before I did. Yeah. Yeah. Like always or? Yeah, I feel like I had that always. That I think was part of when I 
you know, was sizing you up when we were dating and doing risk assessment. I was told once that's what a, a partner does and it sounds kind of terrible, but a risk assessment. I imagine that would be a more peaceful, calm, happy life than what I had. Not like it was, you know, crazy, but my mom and dad were divorced and my dad still, when, we, you know, my sister especially caused a lot of tension between the two of them with her trouble um, that she would get into. So, but there would still be arguments. And of course, my mom remarried and that slowed down. Like my dad didn't come over and do that. And um, that was just when I was really young, but just, you know, and then just my mom has her own drama and I felt like that was not a very peaceful environment in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, so I looked at you and I thought there was going to be a lot more calmness in our house and a lot more laughter and mm -hmm. peace and easy feeling. And I wanted late nights and rock star lifestyle, <laughs> rock star lifestyle <laughs> for a guy who is in sales in the steel industry. I wanted to. kind of funny well you're laughing harder than I expected though wow yeah sorry no it's good yeah it's good but yeah so I, th I think whether it's a result of childhood experiences and it's just inherent in you as the spouse to want peace or if that's a place that you're driven to by the act of alcoholism I think that's a fairly universal need that the loved ones feel in in their relationship they have feel a need for peace sobriety that was not i think originally even on your radar screen you didn't i mean you wanted me not to drink like a buffoon right. but you didn't necessarily want me to be sober right i didn't need you to be um a non-drinker from the start i wanted you to be a social controlled you know drinker that would know when to quit. You could have a couple beers and be done. You would, you know, that's one of the reasons I had mentioned earlier how I had started to detach about not coming down to drink to the basement to watch a movie and drink with you or have cocktails on the porch because you would make them so strong for me. You would think I'm going to get her drunk and then it's going to be this wild night or whatever. Or it's going to be a party on our backyard, in our porch, in the backyard. And I, like, that's not what I wanted. That wasn't peaceful. That wasn't sobriety. That wasn't moderation or anything. What I was, looking for so yeah I didn't necessarily mean for you never to drink because I didn't mind drinks every now and then and I was more of a social drinker but I didn't like to drink at home either. but you had seen that turn bad so many times so that, quickly so many times yeah no understandable so uh sobriety eventually became a need and and now it's a need for both of us I I have absolutely no desire to drink I tell people all the time if if God himself came down and sat across from me and said, Matt, you can drink with no consequences here. I have blessed you with the ability to drink moderately. I wouldn't take him up on it. I, this is so much better than any, any amount of drinking ever was. Um, another, another need that you have and that at this point both of us have is that touch that does not lead to sex is a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. So whether that's hugs, kisses, touches on the back, you know, hand-holding, whatever. Um, would you agree that that's on your list of needs? Yeah. Yeah, I think 
physical touch is very important and it's very healing and comforting and bonding. So, <clears throat> the last one that I put on my little list of what I'm thinking are needs that we both would share is the need to not be mocked or ridiculed. I think this one's pretty interesting because you and I both have sarcastic personalities. We both um, we both like to point out things that just kind of aren't right in the world and they're a little bit funny. We are yeah. quick to mock or ridicule. But we've learned that it's not so good to do that to each other. Like I just did when I laughed so hard when you said a rock and roll lifestyle yeah. for inside it's, sales. We still do it a little bit, I guess. But... <laughs> But, yeah. Um, we don't, I think that we don't take when there's a vulnerable situation and we're having a serious conversation about things and we're expressing our real concerns. I don't take it out on you later and I don't mock you about it and I don't throw it back up in your face. I think we can still be playful. And we know when that, when that that where that boundary is of being playful and jokey versus hurtful and mean. I think it's gone further than that personally. I think there are we we both have insecurities that we're aware of and there are places that we don't go. Like there mm. there are things that I wouldn't tease you about even if I was being playful and everything else was good and we were in a good mood. It just wouldn't it wouldn't benefit either of us mm-hmm. for me to poke fun at that. And you know, I have those too. Mm-hmm. Like my thinning hair, for instance. <laughs> well, you're getting older. That's what happens. It does. But I, I just think we're kinder to each other. And I think that's really important because we have we both know that the world is a mean and evil place in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a loving place too, but, but you're going to run into enough negativity out there in the big bad world. Um, we should be a safe place for each other. Mm-hmm. That's the same environment we're trying to create for the kids too. You know, we we have discipline and we have honesty and authenticity and all of that, but at the same time, there's no need to, you know, ridicule or harp on things when the kids already are feeling bad about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our play. It's our job to lift them up and make them feel good about the good stuff. And make home be a safe place. Yeah. And I think that's important in the relationship as well. One of the problems, you know, on this topic of the fact that the loved ones, the spouses, the truth is hard for the spouses, or expressing the truth, I should say, is hard for the spouses, and and having that sense of authenticity is because often, I know until just recent last few years when you would bring a problem to me sherry i would immediately want to fix it for you mm-hmm. i wouldn't i didn't know what it meant to be a good listener i didn't want to just share the burden of the problem with you i wanted to tell you how to yeah when i say fix it for you mostly what i mean is tell you how to fix it yourself but tell you in an authoritative kind of jackasshole jackassholey jack way <laughs> That this is what you need to do. That means that it was really, really bad behavior. Jack Asshole is really bad. But that, I mean, for most of our relationship, that was my response when, you know, and I would, I would be kind of proud. I'd be, oh, Sherry's got a problem. Great. Let me 
roll up my sleeves and I'll tell her what to do. And yeah. I honestly thought that was being a good husband. And now I recognize that that's not right at all. Listening is a skill. Listening is a difficult skill. I just heard on uh, on a radio program this week, they were talking about the... Radio program. Radio program. <laughs> Tuned into the Philco. No, I'm just driving along and listening to sports radio. And they talked about... Um, Mike Tomlin is the Pittsburgh... God, you just can't stop laughing at that. All I keep thinking is like a big radio, you know, old-fashioned radio. Okay. Oh, good. We must be in a goofy morning. We're having a goofy morning. I guess so. Mike Tomlin is the Pittsburgh Steelers head coach, and I, and I really admire him, mostly because he's been their coach for like 15 or 20 years or something, and I love when, when organizations stick by their guy. Mm-hmm. And so... I, I love that. And but they talked about how he opens every meeting with his players with something to the effect of listening is a skill. And so let's work on that. Let's work on the skill of listening so that we can have more productive meetings. And boy is that true. I used to hear people talk about how listening is a skill and I did not know what they meant. I thought I my ears work, I can hear. <coughs> listening and hearing are two very different things. And you know, listening is not about fixing the problem. So now when you bring issues that are stressing you out to me, I try really hard just to listen, maybe give you some physical contact that doesn't lead to sex, maybe a pat on the shoulder or a, or a hug and say, boy, that, that sucks. That's a tough place you're in. I'm sorry for you. I feel bad for you. Mm-hmm. But not just tell you what you need to do to fix it. And I think that's really, really important. You know, the, I think the most concrete example for us would be with kid issues, right? Because yeah. we have different parenting styles. Yeah. And, you know, you would tell me something that was happening with one of our kids that was just directly between you and them, you know. Yeah. I'm having trouble getting along because I say this and then he says this. And I would say, well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. D- don't, you know, choice is a big example. You're a big <laughs> fan of giving our kids choices. And I would say, well, you're giving them too many options. Just You're the mom. You're the boss. Tell them what to do. And that just didn't feel right to you, right? Yeah, because as an adult, you have to face choices every day. So even if it's a simple thing between grilled cheese or peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you still have to be able to know what you want and be able to make a decision about that and don't defer to whatever you want to fix, you know. Now, there were times that I was like, this is what we're having. Right. But, yeah, I think choices are good to learn how as I think as a skill so here you are trying to teach the kids a skill and when you bring the struggles to me here I am telling you just wipe that completely out of your repertoire yeah. just tell them what what to do or tell them what you're going to do for them or whatever yeah and that how did that feel when that would be my reaction when you would share a problem with well them? I you know I would often say it's not because I remember saying several times, I don't need you to give me an answer. I just want to share this with you um, because this is how they're behaving. And that's why I may be grumpy or that's why I may be looking a little wore down or, you know, whatever the situation would be or just sharing, this is how our day went Yeah. because you would be working and I would be home with them. So you would often have that authoritative voice, like you said, and kind of that fatherly, well, this is what you do. And I just was flabbergasted that 
You know I'm not going to do that. Even even if I could do it and I would do it occasionally, it still didn't feel right to me to do it your way. And then I was like, well, now it's going to backfire and it's not going to work and I'm not going to follow through and now Matt's going to throw it up in my face. Well, if you had just been doing it the way I had been doing it all along, then you wouldn't have had problems. So I knew that there was going to be backlash. Yeah. From that, just because I wasn't going to follow through with your way. Yeah, and I think the things that fall into this category go way beyond child raising. Um, I know bringing uh, issues at work to your spouse. And I, I think this transcends alcoholism, but it's worse when alcoholism is part of the problem. This desire to fix problems. But, but you don't have to be an alcoholic to be a shitty listener. I think yeah. the world's full of shitty listeners. I was one of them yeah. until very recently. But what, whatever the problem is, it's I think it's hard for the spouses, the loved ones, to be authentic and bring the true issues because you're going to get unsolicited solutions instead of just a listening ear, someone that has some empathy and appreciates the fact that you're struggling. Yeah. And it, it, what's really ironic about that Ironic again there, Alanis Morissette, mm -hmm. is the fact that as alcoholics in early sobriety, with for many of us with no other outlet to bring our emotions to because, you know, I'm a man and men don't have emotions and so I'm going to remain even keel on the outside and everyone else in my life is going to think I've got it all held together. The place where we fall apart is with our wives. That's the place where we show the true emotions and dump all this heavy, heavy weight of the stresses, not just about sobriety, but the stresses of the outside world. We dump them on you, and you're expected to carry that load. But then when you have something that you want to share, all I'm going to try to do is fix it and wipe my hands of it and make it go away because I don't want to carry that load. I want nothing to do with that. Yeah, and I That's often, a big problem. Yeah, and I often found that I was feeling insecure about my own capabilities when you would share with me a problem and I would say, have you tried this? Or what about this? Or can you go down this road? Like some suggestions. If you came to me with a problem and if you were like looking for a solution. Um, and that happened a lot when we owned our own business, which was a bakery. You would share with me some of the stressors or things that were going on. And I would be like, you know, well, what about this or maybe we should try I don't know I don't want to like call out anything but you know what about trying to do this and you were like no no it's not what I want to do I'll give an example lots of people wanted to buy a half a loaf of bread we were making sandwiches slice a half a loaf of bread and use the other half for sandwiches like it didn't seem like that big of a deal especially when we were in some financially stressful times you didn't want to set that precedent because yeah. you didn't want to be stuck with a lot of half loaves of bread. Yeah. Because you wanted to use fresh bread for the sandwiches that day. You didn't want to do carryover. Yeah. You know? So I understood the point, but I thought, gosh, if you feel like it's running up, or if it's only a couple people that are just really, you know, voicing an opinion about it, what's the matter with selling that person? And then charge them more than what a half a loaf would cost. Like, you know, say if it was a $7 loaf of bread, they pay $5 or $4, whatever. But you just made me feel so ridiculous about it because it was going against what your belief system was for the bakery. That was one thing. I think maybe that was kind of a bad example because it was 
setting precedents that you didn't want to start, but you didn't even want to look into it. Yeah. That if it was just occasionally, who gives a rip? Yeah. You were definitely more black and white when yeah. you were drinking and not a lot of gray and wiggle room. Yeah. And that uh, people need to be treated differently. Absolutely. You know, each no. situation was different. You're absolutely right. But I just, you know, th- those would be things that you you get so frustrated about, but then you would get frustrated if I offered any solutions. Even if you asked me for them, because you just swatted away anything I would bring up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was quick to... Well, we've talked about this too. I, when I was drinking, I did not appreciate how intelligent you are. And I think that ties into all of this, right? I mean, when you have bad experiences, when you share things with me, so then you just kind of clam up and stop sharing things with me, then it's easy for me to have this impression that you don't have a lot of original thoughts and that you're just, you know, trucking through the world, just day to day doing your thing. and Mediocracy is great. Exactly. (laughs) But when, when I don't give you a good, solid, you know, welcoming reception when you have new creative ideas, then it's going to stifle your creativity and I'm going to draw these conclusions that are, have proven now to be totally incorrect. Like you're super creative and really, really smart. And that's the kind of thing that I was too stupid to pay attention to before for all of these reasons. You know, I think another reason that the loved ones that the spouses don't share their authentic truth with us alcoholics is because we alcoholics have so much to work on ourselves that you don't want to burden us. Especially once we're trying to get sober, right? We're reading and we're going to meetings and we're we're doing all the work of recovery and the idea of adding to that list, you know, and it, like I said, you are, Sherry, you were my only safe harbor where I could show emotions and be honest and authentic. The idea that you would take all of the heavy weight that I was sharing with you and then you'd want to share some of your worries and stresses and struggles back to me. I mean, you just didn't. You just mm-hmm. trudged along stoically and and didn't unload anything on me. Was it because you felt like I had too much to carry as it was? I think that, for sure. And I think the kids also, they didn't really verbalize it and maybe and we didn't discuss it, but even the kids felt it and knew it that they came to me first yeah. for things. Um, now they come to you a lot of the times um, before they come to me and they share with you. Depends on what it is. They they definitely <laughs> pick and me. choose what they're. Yeah. Who they they look for the soft underbelly and that's <laughs> the one they go to. But I I feel like they saw me not really share with you and and I didn't maybe they didn't want to share with you or they just didn't feel comfortable. I don't know. I think that it was a lot of people that kind of didn't tell you stuff. Yeah, you were the sponge. You were absorbing absorbing everyone's pain. Yeah, and I mean, I did have outlets. I had had friends that I would let some of this out or, um, you know, talk to my mom or my sister, you know. Not necessarily things about drinking, but just situations that had happened or how I was feeling about this or that and, um, like, maybe family situations that were with extended family like if I was having something going on with 
like a conversation that I had with, you know, your side of the family that I felt was uncomfortable, I could go and talk to my mom about it. Or if I heard your side of the family say something that I thought was really weird to our kids that I didn't approve of, like this God obnoxious thing about thank you cards, like, and geez, Louise. So, you know, and I could like blow it off to my mom, you know, I'd be like, oh my God, this thing about thank you cards. And then of course my mom would be the, I never have to get a thank you card ever in my life. You you know, like to like counter, counteract that. But you know, but I wouldn't bring it up. I wouldn't bring things like that to your attention, even though it was frustrating. Yeah. Until recently. I think it's important to break through this, to find a way to break through this. Your authenticity was a big contributing factor to getting me sober. So we've just listed a half a dozen reasons, something like that, why loved ones, why spouses have trouble being authentic with their alcoholic husbands, you know, especially in active addiction or in early sobriety. But I think we've got to find a way to break through that because the authenticity is kind of where where the solution lives right so so when you're if you're trying to you know be detaching with love because that's what you read in a book versus expressing you know i'm not talking about screaming matches at two o'clock in the morning but expressing your true needs and how you feel i need peace i know peace isn't on your radar screen there midnight rock star but i need peace that's that's important to me and and i don't want to sugarcoat it i don't want to suggest that this is going to go smoothly because it's not Mm -hmm. but when you're in one of these relationships it's a matter of choose your heart your heart can be to bottle all that up and not be authentic because you're fearing the repercussions or to to try to work with your spouse to find a way for them to hear your needs and so you know this whole idea of we uh, alcoholics learning how to listen super important not trying to fix the problem just learning how to listen learning how to absorb that authenticity it's a and it's not just it's not just important for relationship recovery it's important for individual recovery too for the spouses and for the alcoholics mm-hmm. if you start to have confidence in me i mean we've talked about how self esteem is the opposite of addiction so if you start to have confidence in me and can bring your problems to me and I find a mature way to handle them and you're genuinely thankful for that and it strengthens the relationship, that's going to make me more confident in my ability to be a good husband. Mm-hmm. And with self-confidence, with self-esteem comes an ability to fight off the temptations to drink. So it's really complex. I, the last thing I want to do is oversimplify it. But finding that way to be authentic is super important. I'm going to give another plug for our weekly meetings. And I know it, you know, people must think that we get paid commission when they have a weekly meeting somehow, <laughs> that we've found some kind of revenue stream for this because we talk about it so often. And it's not the case. But as a, you know, representing the alcoholics, especially alcoholics in early sobriety, if I know that there's a set time that I'm going to sit and listen and I'm going to use my listening skills that Mike Tomlin taught me and I'm not going to react and I'm not going to try to fix and solve. I'm just going to sit there and listen and then I can share too and my spouse is going to sit and listen. 
knowing that that time exists on the calendar is going to make it easier for me to prepare for it and to do all those things properly, to listen and not react, as opposed to just, you know, it's Tuesday at seven o'clock at night and I've just finished a long work day and I've, I've still got a few emails I'm going to try to answer and, and boy, I really want to get to the kids' volleyball game or whatever. And all that stress is piled on. And then at that point, you start talking about orthodontics or a freezing refrigerator. Um, that's probably not going to go so well. Mm-hmm. But so having this on the calendar is, is I just think, really important. Yeah, and I know you mentioned the word you don't want the spouse to react. I don't think it's necessarily I don't want you to react. I want you not to overreact, and I don't want you to interrupt and intervene. But that's what I'm good at. But so. I I don't want an overreaction. I want you to show the good feelings, like empathy and understanding or compassion. All those things those that are things young that, men are taught. Yes, exactly. Boys, those yeah. things that they are all taught and yeah. they don't drink away. But so there is a... Because I don't want you to look just sit there and look stoically at me and go, that must be tough in a very right. robotic right. way. I want you to be in tune with me, not overbearing. I think that's a good clarification. Because that you're building this connection and this trust when you are divulging your feelings and your thoughts and your needs and wants or and your issues. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's really important. This isn't an opportunity for the silent treatment, which is yeah, because that's topic. a really pissy thing to do. But yeah, just like sit there and sit, just oh, listen. we got our hour meeting. Fine, I'm gonna sit here silently yeah. and stare through you. For yeah, because that's 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 so not gonna help. False, and we know it. Yeah, we know it. There's work. Recovery's work, man. It's hard. I never used to understand that. Oh, you got to do the work of recovery. What the hell is the work of recovery? This is part of the work of recovery: learning how to listen, mm-hmm. learning how to be empathetic, do all the things that we were never taught as boys. Yeah. Um, and make it a safe place so that our spouse will want or, or to do that. Or even girls, too. There are some that are, you know, in families where they don't share that. So I think it's just... True. You know, there's and, a lot of, like, stuffing of emotions. Absolutely. The, the, the work for the loved ones is to be your authentic self. It's not going to go smoothly. There's going to be some bad moments yeah. and some bad reactions. But figure it out. Keep working at it. Keep going. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. One thing that I want to add, if you don't mind, to the list of things that you wanted was, and you wrote off, you had that list, goodness sakes, now yes, I'm like my flustered. List. Your list, and it was something that we wanted. Towards the end, when I felt like things were getting better, I wanted to bring back some fun. Because we were in a better place, but we needed to start rebuilding. So even though we could have a serious conversation and it maybe wouldn't go well, a couple days later, I wanted to do something fun to re-engage as a couple. And I didn't want to just look at you and dread, oh my God, I'm married to him. We have to have another fucking long ass talk. You know, I didn't, sorry, I just, I didn't want to be like that anymore because you were a lot of fun when I first met you. Yeah. And we did have a lot of fun. So we found a way to enjoy each other's company that we both in, found to be entertaining and cheap because, you know, we've got all these appliances that are breaking. Yeah. <laughs> so adding some humor and some lightheartedness into the relationship toward Couldn't the last couple of years. I remember saying that. Even when we had to, for me, even when I had to fake it till I could make it. Yeah. Working front <laughs> end, super important. 
Well, for my wife, Alanis Morissette's inspiration, Sherry, <laughs> I am, I am Matt, your, your drunken sales rep rock star. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.